0: Zo, so, you can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! War! Hang on!
1: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
2: I'm Jesse Bayless. and I'm Richard Wells.
1: And today we'll be discussing History of the World Part 1, released June 12, 1981. It was written and directed by Mel Brooks and released by 20th Century Fox. Chris Evans was born the day after this film was released. Happy birthday, Captain America. In 1979, A Grip on the Fox Lot asked director Mel Brooks if his next film would be a big one. Not having a next project lined up, Brooks joked that it would be the biggest film ever made, and even announced a joke title, The History of the World. The subtitle would come later. The title is a reference to Sir Walter Raleigh's History of the World Volume 1, which he composed while imprisoned in the Tower of London. Do you guys recall the last film we discussed that was adapted from the works of a knight? being held in a London prison.
3: Excalibur?
1: That is correct.
3: (laughs) Sorry, Richard. I I knew you had that one. Yeah, no, it's fine.
1: (laughs) It was adapted from the works of Sir Thomas Mallory, written during a sentence at London's Newgate prison.
2: (laughs) I love love candy bars with Newgate.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Newgate. (laughs) Sir Walter Raleigh had fully intended to continue on to a volume two, but was beheaded after the first volume. So volume one ends in 130 B.C.,
3: Wait, was all of that thought out when they thought of the history of the world part one? No. Okay. Well,
1: I I think when the part one got added, yes, it was a reference to those Sir Walter Raleigh things. And the
3: fact that there wasn't another one? Yeah. Even though he's called part one? Or
1: that he was leaving it open to eventually come back to. Raleigh is known for at least claiming to introduce both potatoes and tobacco to Europe, though modern historians dispute both claims. Mary Margaret Hume was cast when Brooks saw her on a billboard in Los Angeles.
3: I'm still stuck on, where did potatoes come from?
1: He invented them. (laughs) No, he found them elsewhere and brought them to you. Where
3: was elsewhere? Where did potatoes come from? I don't
1: know. I'm not Walter Raleigh. (laughs) Richard Pryor was already cast as Josephus, but two days before production began was the night Pryor set himself on fire. Brooks wanted to wait for Pryor to be available, but Madeline Kahn recommended Gregory Hines for his first ever feature film role, and I have to assume Cleavon Little would have also been on the short list for that. Mm. Ursula Andress from last week's film reportedly turned down a role, but I couldn't figure out which one. I would guess Empress Nympho. Uh, well no. She's not. As, she's not that funny.
2: Yeah, I would say it's probably be the Miriam role.
1: Oh, sure. That makes or sense. Or the
2: the the French Revolution. Yeah. Lead.
1: The Cloris Leachman character.
2: Madame Defarge
1: yeah the film opens with a 2001 A Space Odyssey parody narrated by Orson Welles
0: 20 million years ago an ape-like creature inhabited the earth
1: a tribe of cavemen awaken in a stone clearing and raise their hands to the sky with the rising sun they pound on their chests in time with the drumming of also Sprock Zarathustra and the chest beating slowly morphs into vigorous masturbating which in turn leads to more sleep The words, our forefathers, are superimposed over the masturbating ape men. (laughs) And once they've all laid down again, the words, history of the world, part one, slide up to camera from the horizon line. We cut from here to our next segment, the Stone Age, wherein Gunga, a caveman played by Sid Caesar, is trying to start a fire to warm his cave tribe. The rocks he strikes together are sparking, but not igniting his kindling. And eventually, another caveman enters frame with a lit torch, which gives Gunga the idea... To hold one of the rocks over the flame and then toss it into the kindling but it's no use and he hands the torch back
3: i think it's interesting to have this whole section of caveman stuff after having watched previously this year caveman, caveman yeah who i think did this section better which is funny to me that that that's true because like this is such a shorter segment of that you think yeah. that you'd really hit it home with this but i think like caveman did it better
1: with their fire stuff
3: uh yeah i mean just with, with all of with it, all of it yeah. with all of it like they they spent an hour and a half or whatever well that it was. was the
1: focus of the movie you know they were only thinking about caveman stuff
3: right but you think that if you're only doing a snippet of it it's the best of the best
1: you would think that that is true
2: well and didn't rudy Deluca write caveman and his in history of right. the World?
1: yes he is next we see gunga painting a horse on a cave wall to indicate the world's first artist which is followed shortly by the world's first critic a second caveman who observes the painting and then climbs up on a rock platform to pee on it.
3: I don't know if this like I feel like I didn't I haven't seen this movie since I was probably a teenager. Like that's how long it's been. Same. And I didn't remember a lot of it. So it was hard for me to tell. I'm like does this just feel really predictable or do or Is it just because I've seen it before? (laughs) No,
1: I think it it probably. I mean, it's very simple setup and punchline stuff. Yeah.
3: You're just like, of course, immediately after the artist is going to come the critic. Like, I could have written that joke.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But I I do remember watching this on loop on Comedy Central for at least a decade of my life. We get a quick look at the first homo sapien and homosexual marriages as two cavemen exit a cave to crack their prospective partners on the back of the head and drag them inside. We see Gunga invent a spear man's first weapon which he immediately tosses into the belly of a fellow caveman and he is very pleased by its functionality the dead caveman is hucked out of the cave and spit on by his tribe we see the invention of comedy with a pack of cavemen watching a performer dance around until he is lifted out of frame by the jaws of a dinosaur in the style of a long cane from the end of a vaudeville act (laughs) dragging the performer backstage the audience is amused by the performer's violent disappearance Next, music is invented when Gunga drops rocks repeatedly on the foot of another caveman who screams in pain. The sketch evolves into a sort of torturer's apprentice situation where a line of cave people have rocks dropped on their feet to produce an arrangement of notes.
3: This is a this is a Monty Python sketch, isn't it? Or I maybe... mean,
1: it, it is in Baron Munchausen, oh, So maybe it's in Baron mm-hmm. Munchausen, which is too. after this. It's 89.
3: Okay. For some reason I was thinking about... Uh, what, what, what do they do in um, in Munchausen? Is it people or is it's, it cats? It's, it's a it's, play
1: it's, called The Torturer's Apprentice and it's a bunch of people in a box oh. and they're pushing keys on a piano that are poking the people to make them I feel like I've scream. seen
3: this done as well with cats, though, and I don't remember what that was in.
1: It might also have been the actual instrument called a cat's enclavier, oh, which is used know. to you arrange cats in order of pitch in a box and you smash them. Really? to make sense it's it's a theoretical instrument but there is a wikipedia page for it (laughs) next we get a short bit on the old testament probably the best known part of the film which was actually improvised on set when mel brooks realized that the stone age set would work perfect for a quick moses bit we see brooks with a moses beard listening to the commands of god and being gifted three tablets with the 15 commandments that men are to live by as he carries them down the mountain Moses is a bit careless with the tablets.
0: All pay heed! The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these Ten! Ten! Ten commandments for all to obey!
1: <laughs> the carvings in the tablet props are the actual Hebrew versions of the commandments, and the legible parts of the broken commandments read don't impregnate, don't laugh, don't buy... And lastly, don't break.
3: Well, that's not as funny as it should have been.
1: No, and if you'll notice, that's only four because the fourth of those five is illegible on the tablet. So those are the only ones that could be translated. Next, we transition to the Roman Empire. We start with a V and X store, the ancient Roman equivalent of a five and dime store. We pan down on a column salesman played by director Barry Levinson. Yeah.
0: Columns, columns, get your columns here, ionic. Doric! Corinthian! Put a few columns out in front, turn any hubble into a showplace! Columns!
1: We see a barber bloodletter, a phony psychic, and we get a quick flash of a used chariot lot.
0: Chariots! Used chariots! Lome islands! they great!
1: The salesman here is being played by Albert Whitlock, who contributes all of the film's truly impressive matte paintings. We see a banner for the Temple of Eros, annual orgy and buffet, first served, first come. Wah, wah I
3: don't get it.
1: A man in line for the orgy tells a bevy of attractive women that he's just invented the concept of the centerfold. The man is being played by Playboy owner Hugh Hefner, who lent several of his playmates to the cast as Empress Nympho's Vestal Virgins. Next, we cut to the unemployment office, but for comedic effect, any U's are replaced with V's. B. Arthur is the one handing out checks, and she berates a gladiator for not killing enough people, reminding him that this is his last week of payment so he better get back to work. Next in line is Mel Brooks as Comicus, an unemployed stand-up philosopher.
0: What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Mm.
1: She's about to give him his money when they're interrupted by Swiftus Lazarus, who tells Comicus that he's just been booked at the main room at Caesar's Palace. B. Arthur steals back the satchel of coins since Comicus is clearly employed now.
0: Now that you're working, you won't be needing this. Wait a minute, that money is mine. I'm sorry, I'm on my wine break.
1: The show starts in an hour, but we pause for a moment on a slave auction as it's wrapping up. The unsold slaves... Are to be sold as lion bait to the coliseum but one of them josephus played by gregory hines says lions only eat christians and he claims to be a jew before launching into a rendition of hava nagila the auctioneer tugs on josephus's robe to inspect his genitals
0: jewish huh he
1: missed I, I jumped and he missed it was his first day on the job he was very nervous he tries to impress them with his dancing talent since he's played by a world-famous tap dancer He sprinkles a handful of sand across the platform and performs the Ethiopian shim-sham sand dance. When they ask him where in Ethiopia he's from, he says 125th Street, as a reference to New York's 125th Street, which is the main street of Harlem. Out of nowhere, a horse dragging a carriage collapses in the street, and its driver starts whipping the shit out of it. A woman tries to stop him, and when he reels back to whip her, Comicus intervenes, knocking the man out. Comicus notices a large rock lodged in the horse's foot and removes it before helping the animal up. Swiftus recognizes the horse as a former racehorse
0: named Miracle. Miracle? Oh, what a beautiful name. What's yours? Miracle? Oh, Comicus. I'm a stand-up philosopher. Oh, I'm Miriam. I'm a Vestal Virgin.
1: Brooks turns to camera.
0: I'm really sorry to hear that.
1: The horse beater awakens and tries to fight back, but Josephus knocks the man out and joins them on the road to Caesar's palace. A pack of guards show up to arrest Josephus for striking a Roman citizen and ask if he knows the punishment. A flurry of hands go up in the crowd. After a few wrong answers, someone correctly responds, fed to the lions.
0: Right! No! What do you mean no? He was right! They sent you to the lions!
2: I I quote this scene a lot. (laughs) in the they shove a living snake up your ass (laughs) and he goes ah no but that's very
0: creative
1: (laughs) the guard here taking answers from the crowd is played by director paul mazursky who last year directed and for some reason narrated willie and phil (laughs) the empress nympho played by madeline Kahn, is carried through the crowd in a litter miriam the vestal virgin begs nympho to spare the life of this slave she hires josephus as a wine steward but for now, he can join her litter bearers on the way back to the palace.
3: I feel like until she entered, I didn't laugh audibly at yeah. any any joke in this entire movie. But then she enters, and I just love every word out of her mouth. It's yeah. pretty
1: impossible not to laugh at Madeline Kahn. She definitely has my favorite line in the whole movie, which is coming up later.
3: Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you know what it is? Oh, it, I'm, it, I'm, it sounds very improvised to me, but I love it so much
2: uh i'm I'm trying to think of what it could be
1: i'll 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 point it out when we get there
2: um i I do there's so many like just random things about this movie that i love um when when she
1: first arrives the guard just goes
2: move
0: that miserable piece of shit
2: (laughs) just the way he's shouting it
1: all of his delivery is so weird yeah (laughs) we cut to the exterior of caesar's palace casino in las vegas playing the part of the ancient roman ruler's palace a row of horns blare to announce Emperor Nero and Empress Nympho as they enter the throne room. Caesar here is being played by Dom DeLuise, and he's introduced by his flamboyantly gay assistant.
0: All hail Caesar! Emperor of Rome! Monarch of the Roman Empire! Ruler of the world! Hail
1: Caesar! At the head of the room, Caesar scratches himself and farts when suddenly the great warrior Marcus Vindictus arrives
0: who returns to Rome after winning a great victory over the Cretans at Sparta. Make that the Spartans at Crete!
1: Vindictus is being played by comedian Shecky Green. He's here bearing gifts, and Caesar wants to know what's under the sheet.
0: Sheet? Sheet! Sheet! Oh, oh, the sheet. Yes. (laughs) Because he just
2: pauses. He's like going on about what he's saying. He's like, what's under the sheet? (laughs) <laughs> like yeah it's,
1: it's like it's <laughs> he has no patience for the rest yeah. of the speech but I, I also really love the way sheki's like the sheet oh yes the sheet sheet yes uh, it's a bathing vessel and to fill the tub a collection of gold stolen from the orient caesar jumps into the bath to bathe in the gold coins and while he's distracted vindictus flirts with the empress i am your servant
0: ah but the servant waits while the master bathes
1: Caesar stands to recite a poem and requests a small lyre, the instrument, but is brought a small liar, in the form of actor Johnny Silver claiming things like he wasn't even there or the check is in the mail. Josephus is ordered to bring wine before Comicus is introduced to do his set. It starts well, but eventually he starts making fat jokes and Caesar is personally offended. His attempt to switch gears also gets him in trouble when he jokes about politics and the corruption of the Roman government all the way up to the emperor. Caesar orders Comicus killed
0: Boy, when you die at the palace, you really die at the palace
1: And then, when Josephus spills wine on Caesar, he orders them both killed but Nympho is able to talk him down from executions to a fight to the death Comicus nearly wins the fight, but asks Caesar to spare his opponent's life and is ordered to kill the man
0: Let him... Die
1: Tough shit. <laughs> <laughs> but Comicus can't bring himself to kill the man. They instead team up to fight their way out of the palace. Comicus cuts a rope and drops a tapestry over Caesar's head and they make a run for it. Miriam grabs Comicus and drags him through a secret passageway. In the chamber of the Vestal Virgins, Empress Nympho enters and nearly slips on a path of rose petals preceding her into the room. All right, forget that shit. I almost fell. <laughs> that that line is the one that killed me that's my favorite line of this whole movie (laughs) because i wouldn't be surprised if if she was literally saying that to the people on the set yeah Yeah.
2: but it also reminded me of anyone who throws roses at my son's feet will answer to me what is that from uh originally it's from coming to america but i always remember it mostly as the lines of james Earl jones as darth vader (laughs) 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 Uh (laughs) ah
0: She'll die before she'll tell you anything. I know you have been inconvenienced, and I'm prepared to compensate you. Shall we say one million Ameri Aha!
1: Nympho must choose her escorts for tonight's orgy and is presented with a row of men naked from the waist down. She sort of sings her response as she looks over the line of dongs. No, 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 yes. No, no, no,
0: no, 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 yes. No, no, yes. no, no,
1: no, no, Miriam smuggles Comicus into the chamber and hides him behind a curtain. The guards enter the empress quarters to find the fugitives, and they notice Josephus posing as a slave in her chamber. But all of Nympho's slaves are supposed to be eunuchs, and he's much less muscular than the rest.
2: You have to give him some time. He has
0: just been sniped.
1: It seems to me that Nympho could also just order these guards out of her quarters. Yeah. Don't they answer to her? Probably. But instead, they're invited to test the men's virility. They call for Caldonia to do a dance in front of each guard to test them.
0: Caldonia! Caldonia! Let's make their big head so hard!
1: Which is apparently a reference to a 1945 Louis Jordan song called Caldonia, whose lyrics read,
0: Caldonia! Caldonia! WHAT MAKE YOUR BIG hand SO HARD?! Uh,
2: this is also a scene that I quote a lot, uh, when Rudy DeLuca is trying to talk to him and he goes, SPEAK UP MUCUS! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, when, when I can't hear people sometimes, I will say that.
1: Accidentally call them MUCUS. Caldonia dances for each of the four slaves who are all covering their crotches with feather dusters. When she dances for Josephus, a feather from his feather duster is lifted into the air as if by his erection, and he jumps over the balcony to escape. We get a quick moment with the Roman Senate choosing to vote between building palaces for the rich or housing for the poor. Fuck the poor. Good. Comicus and Miriam find Josephus and make plans to meet at the theater across the street from the baths. While she finds Swiftus, we see a quick moment outside a shop where a blind man, presumably Oedipus, is begging for change. He's wearing a sign that says "Give to Oedipus," with the only non-VU that we've Mm. seen in Rome so far. Oedipus is able to recognize Josephus coming and offers a behind-the-back low five. As they slap hands, Josephus accurately refers to Oedipus as a motherfucker.
0: Hey, Josephus! Hey, motherfucker.
1: Miriam and Swiftus wait outside the theater and Swiftus impatiently checks his watch, which is an hourglass strapped to his wrist.
0: You should have been here over 30 grains ago.
1: The friends reunite and Miriam leads them into the theater.
0: Now hurry, walk this way.
1: Borrowing a joke from young Frankenstein.
0: Walk this way
1: which we last heard in 1980's Private Eyes.
3: Walk this way. You're not going to mention when we're going to hear it next?
1: When are we going to hear it next?
3: Men in tights. Walk this way. Shows up again.
1: (laughs) That's true. Here, the characters following her have a hand on a hip and wave their robes girlishly, while in Young Frankenstein, the follower emulates Igor's limp, and in Private Eyes, it was another limping joke, I think. We take a moment for all of the characters to dress up as Trojan soldiers, but the time is wasted because they are immediately spotted by the actual Roman guard and make a run for it. Vindictus loses their trail coming around a corner by a pharmacy.
0: Hey say Chemist, can you help me? What are you looking for? A pack of Trojans. Gee, I just ran out.
1: (laughs) We get a groaner bit here where Comicus says the streets are crawling with soldiers and then we see them literally crawling through the street. He suggests they need a miracle to escape And the horse named miracle overhears his name and neighs to them they rush to the horse's wagon to ride it out of town before he gets to the wagon comicus has a quick duel with vindictus but knees him in the balls to escape (laughs) i do like though that vindictus is slashing at him and his his shield and sword are clearly made of styrofoam and they're just breaking apart as soon as he touches them and he's like
0: oh my god i'm fighting with cardboard goodbye head (laughs)
1: On the road out of town, Josephus recognizes a huge crop of marijuana plants and suggests they pull over. He rolls a giant blunt from the weed and then jumps back in the wagon to light it, waving smoke in the faces of the chariots following them. The Roman guards all get high and forget why they were chasing these people in the first place and give up. Comicus and friends come to a flooded part of the road and we see a Moses-looking gentleman, played by another Mel Brooks, in the inserts, but obviously not in the wide shot, standing on a rock beside the waterway. He raises his arms in the air, and magically the waters separate to make a path for the horse to cross the stream. After Miracle crosses the river, we notice that Moses was not performing a miracle, but raising his hands because he was being robbed. Do you guys recall the last time we saw this exact set used?
2: Oh, man. I knew you were going to ask because I've been racking my brain thinking of
1: what it was.
3: Oh, we we used the, the water parting set mm-hmm. already? Yeah. Oh my God, I don't remember.
1: This is the Universal Backlot, a popular piece of the studio tour, and last year we saw this exact section of the tour playing itself in the nude bomb
3: for a studio tour
1: chase scene, and they actually flooded one of the trams in the river.
3: Right, I forgot about that.
1: Our protagonists take a shortcut to a boat to Judea, and we cut back to the Roman guards stoned out of their gourds.
3: Do you care if it falls?
0: What? The Roman Empire? Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Vindictus finally catches up with his men, and he lectures them for stopping until another cloud of smoke blows by, and he's instantly just as baked as the rest of them and invites them to dance. We see the ship to Judea, and the sails read El Al, which is an Israeli airline. In Judea, they find work at a small restaurant that needs a waiter, cashier, and dishwasher. I think the place is called Sign of the Fish the banner outside the restaurant is only partially visible. On his way into the dining room, Comicus is instructed to push the mulled wine because they need to get rid of it. As he circles the table, it becomes clear that this is Jesus talking to his disciples. Jesus here is being played by John Hurt, the titular elephant man of our previous Brooks film. He's telling everyone around the table that someone here will betray him and they don't believe it. The disciples seem mostly annoyed by Comicus's repeated efforts to collect orders from them. Comicus is frustrated, and uses the Lord's name in vain under his
0: breath. Jesus. Yes. What? 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 Yes. Jesus. What? Yes. What? You, what, you said what? What? Nothing. This
3: is like, uh, just a very...
1: It's like a half-assed Abbott in Costello. Yeah, it's yeah, I was going to say, it's a,
3: it's, it's a bad version of Who's That First, because yeah. it only has one level.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Just then, Leonardo da Vinci shows up, easel in hand, ready to paint the group, but he advises them all to sit on the same side of the table so he can get everybody's face. As they pose for the photo, Comicus is standing behind Jesus, holding a silver platter like a halo around Jesus' head. We dip to black and come back up in my favorite segment, the Spanish Inquisition.
3: Oh, it's by far the best.
1: Yeah. The segment starts as a collection of monks enter a sadistic-looking Hogwarts. It's an enormous (laughs) stage, and people are being tortured all over it.
0: The year was 1489. The Black Plague ravaged the continent. It was the hour of the infamous auto de fe, where for public amusement, heretics and non-believers were tortured and burned in a carnival-like atmosphere. And it was guided by the most fearful specter to ever sit in judgment over good and evil. The Grand Inquisitor, Torquemada.
1: Torquemada is the only guy in a red robe, everyone else is wearing black. He steps out on a platform played by Mel Brooks as his, what, fourth character now, fifth character for the film? And he rides a spiral slide down to the center stage and they launch into a full song and dance number about the Inquisition. The message of the song is that they're going to force these prisoners to give up their religion. The song is catchy and Mel Brooks has an excellent voice and some dance moves. But even as a kid, I felt like this joke was already done better by Monty Python ten years earlier.
2: Mm.
3: Yeah.
0: Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition!
1: In fact, I always misremembered a big chunk of Life of Brian's Roman Empire scenes as having come from this film. Yeah, yeah. So when I was rewatching it, I kept waiting for Biggest Dickest to show up, and I was like, (laughs) oh yeah, that's the other movie. We get a moment between two prisoners who compare their experiences here. One of them got a red-hot poker up his ass, and the other one claims that people were playing ping-pong with his balls. A long line of Jewish prisoners and stockades refused to convert, so Torquemada takes a mallet to all of their knees and then kicks an Iron Maiden shut on another prisoner, which, if I recall correctly, was never actually used in the practice of medieval torture that was, like, invented since then. Yeah. Yeah. We have one more walk-this-way joke within the same film.
0: Hey, Torquemada, walk this way!
1: He's invited to pull a lever on what is essentially an enormous slot machine with prisoners attached to its wheels. The men on the wheels don't appear to be dummies, and the footage doesn't look especially sped up, so I'm not sure how they did this. But it looks great when the guys are spinning. Like, I'm very impressed with the execution of this effect. Torquemada scores a jackpot, and silver coins come tumbling out of the machine. When nothing they've done can convince the prisoners to convert, Torquemada calls in the nuns, and an enormous pool is revealed from beneath the stage. The soundstage used for this scene is stage 32 on the Paramount lot, which had an enormous pool installed under the stage for personal use by Howard Hughes himself.
3: It wasn't even for a film. It wasn't
1: for a set, yeah. (laughs) All the nuns yank off their habits and dive into the pool for a synchronized swim routine. Suddenly, prisoners are diving into the pool as if choosing to convert, and the nuns rise from the water with sparklers on their heads in the form of a giant silver menorah.
3: I just think it's funny because uh, we're we're on the cusp of another film that's about to have a synchronized swimming scene where they come out of the water with sparklers on their heads. You you don't know what it is?
1: No. What is it?
3: The Great Muppet Caper? Oh... And I, is it I miss
1: mean, piggy in the middle and
3: yeah yeah it's when she's doing the, her fashion show and and it's her like dream sequence when she like falls into the fountain uh but it's just i it just like it's funny to me that like two movies like that came out within the same month of the same year had such similar scenes yeah and in
1: 1980 we had the synchronized swimming routine in caddyshack um but i, I also remember and i think they have sparklers on their heads also it at the beginning of austin powers or maybe it's austin powers the spy who shagged me when they're doing the whole hotel routine at the beginning. As the song wraps up, the menorah starts spinning in the middle of the pool, which seems like it would be very difficult to balance on. Next, we get the French Revolution.
0: Paris, a city filled with poverty, misery, and despair. The time was ripe for revolution.
1: A dirty gentleman is selling apple cores, which he claims are freshly picked from the garbage of the rich. Next, we see a man selling dead rats, And last, a man standing beside an empty cart is offering to sell nothing to the crowd. Like, out loud, he's offering nothing. We see a sign for Madame Defarge's Inn, serving the scum of Paris for over 300 years, which, if we do the math, takes us back to exactly the Spanish Inquisition from the last scene. A rich man moving down the street is approached by multiple beggars, who eventually start begging each other when the man offers them nothing. We see a woman, played by Cloris Leachman, possibly as Madame Defarge, sitting outside a small shop, as men sneakily enter the door beside her. She follows them inside, and the building is crowded with people planning a revolution. Leachman proposes to the people that they take action against the ruling class. The scene ends with several more variations on the walk this way bit, with the crowd repeating Leachman's hacking cough along with her rallying cry.
2: I figure that's more from Blazing Saddles. Sure. With the Harvey Corman. But it's the same the joke where it's me.
1: like, do the thing that I'm doing, right. but not that part of what I'm doing. We cut from here to Count de Monet in a fancy carriage with his assistant Bernays. De Monet asks... I don't something. know if it's his
2: assistant. I think it's, I think it's supposed to be his wife.
1: Is it his wife? I, I think what? there's... I, d- I did not get that impression.
3: No, I don't no? think so. No? No, he's a, he's a guy.
1: I know, but that that's that's
2: the joke. No, I, feel. I don't know. I, I, I never I got think the, he's supposed that to be his impression. helper.
3: I don't think that's supposed to be I don't think he's even pretending to be a woman, oh, really? yeah, oh, man.
2: i I always read this scene was that they were a, a married couple.
1: No, I think they're they're just um, they're like contentious employee mm. employer situation. yeah
2: because i I just want a movie about them.
1: yeah. no, they're <laughs> they're very fun. This but, whole scene is great.
2: The relationship is amazing.
1: Desmonet asks if there are any raisins left, and Bernays is reluctant to part with his share.
0: You ate yours. These are
1: mine. Desmonet reminds Bernays that he paid for all of the raisins.
0: I paid for them. These are mine. (laughs) Don't be saucy with me, Bernays.
1: As they pass through the city gates, an angry crowd of beggars ask Count Desmonet for money, though they mispronounce his name De money and he repeatedly corrects them. A red carpet is unfurled from the sides of the carriage and laid completely over beggars in the street who are then crushed underfoot. Desmonet is here in search of the king, who's currently playing chess with human chess pieces. When it becomes clear he is losing, the king invokes the king's privilege and takes three turns at once, which he uses to order his chess pieces to mount the queen piece. Eventually, the king joins the pieces in raping the queen on the chessboard. As he watches the chess orgy Des reminds his staff that their powers rely on the survival of the monarchy de orders the piss boy to hold a bucket in front of him while he relieves himself while he fills the bucket Des recognizes the piss garcon as he calls him from somewhere but he can't recall where Des offers the piss boy a tip in the form of a coin which he drops in the piss bucket immediately after climbing off the queen The king spots another woman bending over to smell flowers and lifts her dress to thrust his crotch into her butt. As they part ways, the king approaches the camera and addresses us directly. It's good to be the king. Another fine lady, Mademoiselle Rimbaud, approaches the king to ask a favor. Her father is being held prisoner in the Bastille and she is requesting his pardon before he dies there. Apparently he was imprisoned simply for speaking the words, the poor ain't so bad, and the king is surprised he wasn't sentenced to death. The king offers a predictable trade, her virginity for her father's freedom.
0: I was raised in a convent. I don't indulge in pleasures of the flesh. You don't put out, he don't get out.
1: He gives her precious little time to make a decision.
0: You got ten seconds to make up your mind. Hump death, hump death, hump death, hump death, hump death, hump death. Your time is running out. Hump, she
1: death, agrees to meet him at his chambers at midnight. The king assaults a fourth woman in his courtyard and again shares with us how good it is to be the king. Monet finally speaks to the king and announces the impending revolution.
0: It is said that the people are revolting. You said it, they stink on ice. (laughs) I love that line.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they are. They are revolting. The king waves away Monet's fears, suggesting that he is a friend to all people and then calls for peasants to be launched into the air like clay pigeons for target practice. De Monet pitches the king a plan to employ a double in the event of his attempted assassination. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a peasant made to resemble the king in case of an assassination attempt?
3: Excalibur?
1: Kagemusha!
3: God. The whole point
2: of the movie! Oh, god damn
1: it. Somehow it doesn't strike De Monet until now that the king bears a striking resemblance to someone here in the courtyard.
0: That's it! Your majesty, you look like the piss boy! And you look like a bucket of shit!
1: i really love the delivery of that line he convinces the king that the piss boy is his exact double and the plan is underway the piss boy is quickly dressed as the king complete with a makeup job but is reluctant to play the king's part demonet explains rather blatantly that he is here to die in the king's place and suddenly there's a knock at the door it's the virgin daughter here to pay with her flesh for her father's pardon Amusingly, Count de Monet incorrectly introduces himself as de Money and then angrily corrects himself.
0: I am the Count de Money. de
1: Monet.
2: Again, this is playing off a previous joke from Blazing Saddles. Right. With the uh Hedley.
1: She offers herself to the king, but unbeknownst to her, the king's duplicate, who is not aware of the deal, it seems he is prepared to hand over the pardon without the price of her virginity being paid. The piss boy quickly forges a pardon on the king's desk and hands it to the girl to order her father's release. We cut to her father in his cell where he speaks to several caged birds, one of whom, Pierre, seems to have been eaten by a cat in the night. He swings the cat in circles by its tail before throwing it out the cell window and then his daughter arrives. Her father carries all his pet birds to the window to set them free, but one at a time they simply fall off the window (laughs) ledge because they're all dead. The peasants begin storming the castle, and Mademoiselle Rimbaud and her father help the Pissboy escape. The Piss Boy tries to explain exactly who he is to the rioters, but they don't believe him. We cut to the Piss Boy, still dressed as the king, and still wearing all the king's makeup, even though he could, like, take off a mole or some facial features that might make him look less like the king, and he's standing beside a guillotine and asked if he has any last requests.
0: Novocaine! What, what the... There is no such thing known to medical science. I'll wait.
1: Rimbo announces almost under her breath that only a miracle can save the piss boy now, and right on cue, Miracle, the racehorse from thousands of years earlier, <laughs> shows up to collect the piss boy, with Gregory Hines Josephus still driving the cart. Do you guys recall the last time a man with a white horse rescued someone from public execution? Yes. What was that?
2: The Lone Ranger. That
1: is correct. The piss boy informs his fellow escapees that they are quickly approaching the end, and it is time to kiss. In a wide shot, we see a huge mountain carved into the shape of the words THE END, and our story comes to a close. But, before our credits begin, we are treated to a montage of clips from an as-of-yet-unreleased History of the World Part 2, which begins with Hitler on ice, which goes exactly how you'd expect it to. It's just Hitler skating around for a minute. Next is a Viking funeral, and we see a boat on the ocean lit ablaze, under some somber music, borrowed from John Morris's score for Mel Brooks' The Twelve Chairs. The last segment is for a Star Wars parody called Jews in Space, which obviously lays the groundwork for Mel Brooks' later film Spaceballs, but also incorporates a song that Brooks will later reuse in Robin Hood Men in Tights.
0: We're Jews on in space we protecting the Hebrew race Appears, right back
1: in we see starships in the shape of the Star of David. Several sound effects appear to be borrowed whole cloth from the Star Wars films.
2: Yeah, I mean, but this is the 20th century Fox, right? Film, so oh, I'm sure so was... they didn't
3: get in trouble for that. No, Probably. and I,
1: I think he made deals with Lucas, especially when Spaceballs came around. That he kind of gave him free reign. Usually, George Lucas does not have a sense of humor about Star Wars parody stuff. But Mel Brooks came to him and I made some kind of a it's... deal.
3: It's kind of like Weird Al saying, can I parody your song? You're like, okay, you're Weird Al, go ahead. Exactly.
1: (laughs) And here we end the film with credits scrolling out into the stars, emulating the trapezoidal prologues of each Star Wars episode. Brooks mentioned in an interview with Gene Siskel that they tested a scene, since deleted, that made light of the Three Mile Island incident with a whole mutated half-animal family. But it didn't test very well, so they cut that part. Brooks has publicly denied any plans for a part two, insisting instead they would jump right to a part four. And yet, about six weeks ago, History of the World Part Two was officially announced as an eight-episode Hulu variety series. Huh. So look for that sometime next year, probably.
2: I, I would have liked, like, uh... Do you remember Hysteria?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I would, It I would was have... like sort of an, an Animaniacs follow-up show.
2: Yeah, and like a, a his- historical Animaniacs, yeah. if you will, where they took, like actual historical events and made like comedy scenes from them mm-hmm. uh i would have liked that like i think i, w- I feel like that would have been something what i would want for a sequel instead of a
3: well maybe that is what this is you, okay. i don't know yeah
1: i do feel like the the point of it being a variety show is that it's probably going to be like really well produced sketches but I hope so from, be like
3: drunk history yeah <laughs>
1: yeah maybe That's maybe something like that i would hope that it's not just one story per episode though that it's like segments, you know, that it's like 5-minute pieces. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. The sketch show would be nice.
1: But yeah, I really like this movie. Um I remember watching it a lot as a kid. It's probably one of my favorite Mel Brooks movies just because I I am not a huge Mel Brooks fan, and I probably watched this one the most. It is weird that one segment of this film is like 50 minutes long. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it takes up so much of it, and I I remember even as a kid when they come back from a commercial break being like, "What happened to the people?" that we've been following for the whole time, it's like, no, this is a different section now. But it's the same movie, right?
3: Yeah, you watched it uh, on Comedy Central, though. Like, we had a VHS of this. Like, I clearly remember having a VHS of this as a kid and thinking it was wildly inappropriate that I was watching it at yeah. the age I was watching
1: it. But it's still, it's it's one of the better movies of this ilk that we've seen so far on the show, which, uh, following in the footsteps of Holy Moses mm-hmm. or uh, the, the, the Marty Feldman, Feldman one. Yeah.
2: Well, but that's that's in contemporary times.
1: Right. But if they were trying to do religious parody stuff. Okay. And I feel like they failed a bunch of times in a row. And then this was the first step back to like, this wasn't a complete failure. There's funny stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like obviously Mel Brooks knows how to use Madeline Kahn in a way that other people so far have not over the course of this yeah. podcast, um, that he knows how to write for her. And I, I as much as I like Gregory Hines, I do feel like that should have been Richard Pryor. And the whole time you're watching it, you're just like, I can hear Richard Pryor deliver all these lines. Yeah, and it would be yeah. the only difference is it would be slightly funnier.
3: Yeah, in God we trust.
1: In God we trust. There you go. It's definitely a thumbs up for me, though.
2: I have a lot of fond memories of growing up with this movie, and this, this is, I and mean, I've seen it. Gosh, I, I can't even tell you how many times. But this this time, I actually kind of sat down and watched it very objectively. Yeah. Um, and I noticed a lot of things that like. Are kind of like you said. I think you mentioned like there's some cringy moments. Like yeah, there, there's weak, land. weak jokes. Um, Mel Brooks will often just like repeat something someone says in a weird way.
1: Like yeah, Judea, Judea, Judea. Or it's like, That's or, not or it's
2: not even that. It, it's like like Josephus says like we're armed with the power of mighty joint. And Mel Brooks will just go mighty joint. Like yeah, like he didn't know how to respond. Yeah. To to that line. There's a couple of of instances like that he just says something, and it's like he's like i feel like there's probably a lot of improvisation going probably, on probably on yeah. yeah i feel that as much as i do really like this movie and it is a thumbs up i feel it it has a lot of weaknesses mm-hmm. that i i had not recognized really like outside of like it was like because you have something like young frankenstein and blazing saddles which to me are leaps and bounds above above history of the world
1: i yeah. uh, blazing saddles is my favorite mel brooks movie i don't actually care for young oh well
3: that's where you're completely i know i'm objectively the, wrong the best of like all of them but
1: <laughs> blazing saddles is my absolute favorite of all of his movies and this is probably a close second place because i don't care for Spaceballs.
2: yeah Spaceballs is 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 messy i i i don't like the straight up parody yeah like i do enjoy i do have i've come to enjoy dracula dead and loving it more and more (laughs) see
1: i haven't seen like his later stuff either
2: um because i i I, I mean he's still around he yeah keep going dracula dracula didn't loving it like when i first watched it was like ah, that's kind of funny but the more more i watch it the funnier it gets yeah um and men in tights is okay yeah i remember men in
1: tights feeling like uh almost an echo of the hot shots movies when it came out yeah where it was just trying to do like you know that Zucker Abrams Zucker just sight gags galore thing but I love that movie no I love like, it too I, really
3: I, love I I don't mean that as a slight necessarily
2: <laughs> because R- Richard Lewis is so much fun in that movie it's like, yeah. I hope it's worth the noise <laughs>
1: <laughs> well this this movie is the first one in a while that Mel Brooks wrote by himself mm. um, which I think affects things I think he he has great comedy writers that he works with often yeah and this is this is the first time on his own for a while and i think he was relying on an ensemble he was relying on these being short segments and he knows that he has the strength as a sketch writer to pull that off as a one-man team but i think that if he'd have brought a couple more people in here this could have been this could have been life of brian like this could have been really really funny the whole way through and it and it does come across as a little weak in places
3: i i give it a thumbs up but i I'm gonna say, and and this is probably the difference between you know me watching it when I was much younger and me watching it now. I realize how much of the humor in it is just super base humor, and yeah. like I just that just doesn't do it for me now. And you know maybe as a teenager I thought that was funnier than it is, but like the opening sequence of the of cavemen just masturbating, like it's it's not it's not yeah, super but that, funny. Yeah, like, and that just... <laughs> happens on kids
1: shows now. Like who cares? like <laughs> I saw an episode of Bluey the other day no. where they're all blowing each other. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's not true. Um,
3: but like I, I, I just feel like
1: Maybe that's a different they're
3: show. They're going Bluey. Bluey. <laughs> <laughs> Bluey. You watch the wrong... <laughs> are careful what you ask for du- when you use the microphone on the Apple TV. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, I just think that like it's, 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 it's not trying hard enough to go for those really stupid jokes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and obviously it's a little embarrassing to watch the bit with Dom Deloise and when he gets to the front of the room he's scratching his crotch and he farts and people are just groaning around the room. Because every time I hear a fart in a movie, unless there's like something is physically being affected by the fart in the shot, I assume it was it was decided in post that they would add a fart sound effect for laughs and th- nothing is directly affected by this fart. So it makes me think that they just added it in post cause they were like, what would make this moment funnier? And it's like, it wasn't that turns out it wasn't that.
2: <laughs> I, I look at like the, the movies that he did before things like, like high anxiety, which I think is, is also superior to, to this movie and
1: that's that's closer to what you were talking about before with being a parody film because it's, yeah. it's very it's all hitchcock stuff
2: but but the, because it's borrowing from so many different right, Hitchcock yeah. things it doesn't feel like a direct parody it's of not anything. a
1: shot for shot remake of yeah. star wars
2: uh it's not a shot for shock parody like the uh, newer psycho the... sure yeah <laughs> Sorry, that was a little joke <laughs> I think, dig at gus van Zant there but uh i still really enjoy this movie I still quote it a lot. Um I, I I think it's just gets to the child in me, uh that I because I, I too watched this movie as a child. Yeah. Um and didn't get a lot of the jokes. Yeah. Um but getting them now I enjoy it a lot yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. Some of the jokes haven't aged well in the sense of some of the terms that they use for like homosexuals and yeah. Uh
1: there's a lot of homophobia in in the stand up bit that Comicus does for Don DeLuise.
2: Yeah. But you know, aside from those things, I, I I still really enjoy it. I I find it I find it would be harder and harder to find groups of people to recommend it to.
1: You know, actually, now that now that I uh, let me let me take that back a step because there's not actually homophobia in it. He's just using terms that are no longer acceptable. Yeah. But he's not making. L- fun of gay people no, or, no, no. or saying anything at the expense of gay people right in general he's just using words that we don't use yeah. anymore to you describe know, one specific gay character which
3: i thought it was actually kind of funny and, and almost kind of progressive in the caveman scene when a guy comes out hits a girl over the head drags her back into the cave and then they do the scene again but it's a guy comes out and hits a guy over the head and drags him back into the cave but like there was no additional There's, joke yeah. about it yeah. like it's just like yep there you go yeah <laughs>
1: No, I, because I, 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 don't think he was trying to be offensive or anything in that yeah. situation. I, I, think it was, it's just a word that at the time was okay to use to describe a gay person in a scene, and, and it's no longer that way. Letterbox, what are you thinking, Jess?
3: Um, I actually have it pretty high. Um, I think because it has a lot of rewatchability and quotability. Um, and I would probably recommend it above a lot of other movies from this year so i have it at number 10 for the year out of 79 it's uh below night riders and above miss 45
1: okay richard what do you got
2: Uh, i have it at number eight which puts it uh below cutter's way but above the howling
1: Um, i have it in 11th place uh it's just under polyester and just above the howling also Our writer, director, and star here was Mel Brooks, who plays Moses, Comicus, Torquemada, Jacques, and King Louis the what? 16th? 16th? Yep. This is the most characters Brooks has ever played in a single film. He's a wildly popular comedian, writer, director, responsible for titles like Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs, etc. We've discussed a bunch already and we'll discuss a lot more because he's a very loyal employer and he held on to actors and crew their entire careers. He was married to Mrs. Robinson herself, Anne Bancroft, writer and director of 1980s Fatso, and he tried twice and failed twice to cast Richard Pryor in his films, the first attempt failing due to Pryor's uninsurability when he was replaced with Cleavon Little in Blazing Saddles, and here replaced due to the last minute medical emergency, i.e. setting himself on fire. About 12 years ago, I was working on A&E's The Beast with Patrick Swayze, and we did some of our post work at Culver City Studios, where Mel Brooks's offices were at the time. I would see him all the time driving himself to work every day in a Rolls Royce or whatever super fancy car it was, and I had to go down on the weekend once, and because I was in a rush, I parked in Mel's spot because it was the closest one to the building, and I assumed that this would be excusable for three minutes on a Saturday, but by the time I got back to it, there were already multiple golf carts parked behind me with very serious-looking people. <laughs> but thankfully, they let me off with a warning that day. The music here was from John Morris, who previously composed 12 Chairs, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, High Anxiety, and The Elephant Man for Brooks. He also composed Yellowbeard, Johnny Dangerously, and Clue. So he followed Madeline Kahn over to Clue. And Yellowbeard. Right, yeah. Cinematographer Woody Omens. After this, he worked mostly on TV movies until a trilogy of Eddie Murphy titles, Coming to America, Harlem Nights, and Boomerang. Editor John C. Howard was the editor on previous Brooks films, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Silent Movie, and High Anxiety. And he also cut Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Drowning Pool, and Nightwing. Dom DeLuise played Emperor Nero. He's another regular Mel Brooks collaborator. He often partners up with Burt Reynolds, as in the Cannonball Run films and All Dogs Go to Heaven, which is just one of Dom's collaborations with Don Bluth that continued with the Fivel movies and Secret of Nim. So he's in a bunch of those. Mm Mm-hmm. Last year we saw him in Anne Bancroft's Fatso. He was also in Last Married Couple in America, Holy Moses, and Smokey and the Bandit 2, and he's back later this year for the first Cannibal Run movie. Madeline Kahn played Empress Nympho. She appeared previously for Mel Brooks in Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles, both in 74. She's also in Paper Moon, Clue. We saw her last year in three titles, none of which made particularly good use of her, Simon, Holy Moses, and First Family. Harvey Corman played Count de Monet, the role was offered to John Cleese, who turned it down due to scheduling conflicts, and I think that's fine. Yeah. I think Harvey Korman is marvelous here. Yes. He has appeared in every incarnation of the Flintstones, from the original animated series as The Great Gazoo, all the way through to Viva Rock Vegas as Colonel Slaghoople. We've seen him so far in Herbie Goes Bananas and First Family. Cloris Leachman played Madame Defarge. She was Frau Blucher in Young Frankenstein. She's the grandmother in The Crudes and on Raising Hope. We've reviewed her work so far in two movies that feature cars floating through canals. Herbie Goes Bananas and Foolin' Around. Ron Carey played Swiftus Lazarus. His character's name is a reference to the great Hollywood agent Swifty Lazar. Do you guys recall the last time we brought up Swifty Lazar on the show?
3: No. No.
1: (laughs) Tony Curtis's character, the film producer Marty N. Fenn in The Mirror Cracked, takes a call from Swifty!
0: Swifty! How are you, Swifty? What are you doing? Oh, things are great.
1: Kerry is a regular collaborator of Mel Brooks's, and we saw him last as Dom DeLuise's brother, cousin, friend, I don't remember, in Fatso from writer, director, Anne Bancroft. He also shows up as a cab driver in our Patreon review of Out of Towners last year. He's also in Silent Movie and High Anxiety for Brooks, which I think you mentioned a scene from High Anxiety when we talked about him in the Fatso review. Yeah. Gregory Hines played Josephus. He's a world-famous tap dancer. We'll see him later this season for Wolfen. He also stars with Billy Crystal in Peter Hyam's Running Scared in 1986, not to be confused with the 1980 film or the 2006 film. Sadly, he passed away from liver cancer in 2003. Pamela Stevenson played Mademoiselle Rimbaud. She's Lorelai in Superman 3. In 1989, she married Billy Connolly, and they are still together today. Good for him. Yeah. And good for her. I like him. Shecky Green played Marcus Vindictus. He's a classic old-school comedian. He's actually still around. He's 95 years old as of this recording. He also shows up as Mr. Byright in Splash. There's a lot of Splash crossover. Mm. Sid Caesar plays the chief caveman. He's a longtime television performer and collaborator of Mel Brooks on Your Show of Shows and Caesar's Hour. We saw him last year as Joe Capone in the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu, but the first role I always think of is the old man with the winning keynote ticket, at the end of Vegas Vacation. I want the
0: money! The money!
1: Money! Say it! Money! Oh.
2: Money! I always wonder about that scene in that movie. If it's he's like, supposed to be dead or not? Like, if if he really said to take the money. Or I hope he didn't. <laughs> I hope hey, Chevy Chase is just a just... monster.
1: <laughs> that would be so much better. He's just like, what did he say? He said to take the ticket. It's like, no, he said call an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Margaret Humes played Miriam. She was Marilyn Teller on Erie, Indiana, mother of the lead Marshall Teller, played by Omri Katz from Hocus Pocus. She's also Dawson's mom on Dawson's Creek. Orson Welles was the narrator. Brooks offered Orson $25,000 for five days work, but he'd finished his voiceover work to perfection before noon on the first day. Of course he did. (laughs) Orson is best known as the writer-director star of 1941's Citizen Kane and later titles like The Magnificent Ambersons and Touch of Evil. He's Robin Masters, for whom Magnum P.I. is house-sitting on that show. One of his final feature credits was as the voice of Unicron, the planet-eating Transformer, in 1986's Transformers the Movie. We saw him last as General Dreadle in our Patreon review of Catch-22. Rudy DeLuca played prehistoric man slash Captain Mucus. He was a writer on Silent Movie, High Anxiety, Caveman, Transylvania 65000, Life Stinks, and Dracula Dead and Loving It. He also plays Vinny, the robot sidekick of Pizza the Hut in Spaceballs. Lee French played Prehistoric Woman. She's Gary's mom in Halloween 2, and Gary will show up later as a guard. He's the one who says, move that miserable piece of shit. Richard Karen played Prehistoric Man. He was Sunny in Fatso last year. He's the voice of several Darkwing Duck characters. Sammy Shore played Prehistoric Man. He is the husband of Mitzi Shore and the father of Polly Shore. Suzanne Kent played Prehistoric Man. We just saw her as the music agent in Nice Dreams who mistook Chong for Jerry Garcia. And last year we had her as a contestant in the Gong Show movie. She's also Miss Renee on Pee-wee's Playhouse. Michael Champion played Prehistoric Man. He plays Helm in Total Recall and Casey in Beverly Hills Cop. Howard Morris played Court Spokesman, The Roman Empire. He's a big-time voice actor dating back to Beetle Bailey in the early 60s. He did miscellaneous voices on the Flintstones and Mr. Magoo series. He's Mr. Peebles on Magilla the Gorilla. He was Jughead for the entire run of the Archie animated series. He's miscellaneous voices on Alvin and the Chipmunks, miscellaneous DuckTales voices. He's King Amuck on Tailspin. He was Wade Duck on Garfield and Friends, which I think is the character that's always wearing an inner tube, right? Um, Isn't that Wade Duck? Can't remember. He's Phlegm on Cow and Chicken and I Am Weasel. He's also the voice of the Hamburglar in all the McDonaldland commercials and the Gopher in The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. He also plays the live-action roles of Professor Lilo Man in High Anxiety and Dr. Zadell in Splash.
2: Uh, it's Professor Lil' Ullman. <laughs> Lil' Ullman? Yeah because Mel Brooks goes professor little old man <laughs> it's like little old man
1: Charlie Callis played the soothsayer in the Roman Empire he's Elliot from Pete's Dragon Paul Mazursky we said is the Roman officer who was taking answers from the crowd he's the director of Willie and Phil as well as Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice Harry and Tonto next stop Greenwich Village and an unmarried woman and later Moscow on the Hudson down and out in Beverly Hills and Moonover Parador. Ron Clark played stoned soldier number no. one he was the writer of Silent Movie, High Anxiety, and Life Stinks for Brooks. Jack Riley played Stone Soldier Number no. 2. He played Riley the piano player in The Long Goodbye, the one who's mm-hmm. playing The Long Goodbye on the piano. He's also Alex Max's driving instructor, Mr. O'Reilly, on an episode of that series. He also voices Stew Pickles yeah. in 145 episodes of Rugrats, Father of Tommy Pickles. Art Matrano played Leonardo da Vinci. He was Mauser in the Police Academy movies. He was a gas station attendant in How to Beat the High Cost of Living last year, and we just saw him as Joey in Going Ape earlier this year. Henny Youngman played a chemist in the Roman Empire. That's the guy who said, oh, we just ran out of the Mm -hmm. Trojans. He's a classic old school comedian guy, famous for lines like, take my wife, please, a bit which he actually tells himself as a comedian in the movie Goodfellas. He's also worked previously with Brooks for Silent Movie as Fly-In Soup Man. Hunter Von Lear, played lieutenant bob from the roman empire he's gary hunt in halloween 2 the one whose mother in halloween 2 is also in this movie fritzfeld played the maitre d in the roman empire he's dr lehman in bringing up baby he also played the chief steward in herbie goes bananas where he also makes that fun pop noise with yeah. his mouth so that's
2: three herbie goes bananas actors that we've had in this movie right
1: and he also appears as a maitre d and herbie rides again And for Mel Brooks in Silent Movie, where I would guess he does not make that noise. Hugh Hefner played Entrepreneur. He's the founder of Playboy and worked previously for Mel Brooks as a guest on Get Smart. He makes regular appearances as fictionalized versions of himself on shows like The Odd Couple, Laverne and Shirley, The Simpsons, The Larry Sanders Show, Blossom, Roseanne, Sex and the City, Just Shoot Me, Entourage, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. He does not appear in Iron Man. But as Tony Stark is entering the Walt Disney concert hall, he spots an old man from the back and says, you Look great, Hef But when he taps on the guy's shoulder, he spins around and it's Stan Lee in a smoking jacket with a pipe and two hot ladies. Pat McCormick played the plumbing salesman. He's a longtime comedy writer who wrote on the staffs of the Red Skelton Hour and Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. He plays the Ghost of Christmas Present in *Scrooged*, but the one in the TV special, and right. not the one played by Carol Kane in the film, because that part is played by Carol Kane. <laughs> he was Big Enos, the father of Paul Williams' Little Enos in all three *Smoky and the Bandit* films, and we'll see him next in *Under the Rainbow* later this season, for which he also wrote the screenplay.
3: Are we sure that's a father-son relationship and not no. brothers?
1: I we looked it up at the time. Not gonna do it again. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> but he's it's either father and son or siblings, I mean, I, but they're both named Enos.
2: I, I think it's I think they're father and son. Yeah, maybe.
1: Barry Levinson played column salesman. Next year he directs his feature film debut, Diner. And later, The Natural, Young Sherlock Holmes, Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, Toys, Wag the Dog, Sphere, and Bandits, among many others. He's also the voice of Marty Benson, father of Jerry Seinfeld's Barry B. Benson in B Movie. Ronnie Graham played Oedipus. He was the minister in Spaceballs. Lee Delano played Wagon Driver. He's Sergeant Lewandowski in Splash. Johnny Silver played the Small Liar. He was Benny Southstreet in Guys and Dolls and Caddy in Spaceballs. He's also Ludicrous Lion and Dr. Blinky on H.R. Puff and Stuff. Eileen Sackey played a slave. She was also Dr. Fujimoto in Splash. John Hurt played Jesus. Obviously for Hurt, this is coming on the heels of his performance as the Elephant Man in the most recent Brooks film. We've also seen him in Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, which shot first unit pre-Elephant Man and then came back for reshoots after Elephant Man. Hurt is also well known for his part in 1979's Alien, which he parodies himself for mel brooks in the later film Spaceballs.
2: one of my favorite john hurt moments in my life has always been and i, I don't know if i brought this up on the uh elephant man yeah um was his random oh, appearance snl and in, in snl did yeah you up? did bring okay. that up
1: <laughs> and i hadn't seen the sketch and i still haven't i tried to find it after that i couldn't yeah. find it but he's like the the
2: he's i think he's the march hare yeah
1: c l kessler played a disciple in the roman empire He's Dr. Nelson in Parts the Clonus Horror. He's also Ben the Mailman in 1980's The Attic, which should be getting a mini at some point. Howard Mann played another disciple. He was the high priest in Holy Moses, and he was Jules Cohen in Going Ape earlier this year. Sandy Helberg plays a disciple. Uh, he also plays Officer Clark in Hollywood Nights. He's Dr. Schlotkin in Spaceballs, and he plays a director in Mortal Kombat. He's not the director of Mortal Kombat. He plays Johnny Cage's director. Michelle Drake played a Vestal Virgin. She's one of the cheerleaders from Hollywood Nights from the team of three cheerleaders, one of whom is accidentally going commando. She's also a massage girl in Cheech and Chong's next movie. Gina Kyo plays another Vestal Virgin. She's back as Susie in Michael Crichton's Looker later this year.
2: And these are all, all the Vestal Virgins were were playmates. playmates,
1: Heidi Sorensen is another Vestal Virgin. She's a hooker in Fright Night and Trudy in Roxanne. Karen Morton is a Vestal Virgin, and she plays a playmate in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and Beverly in the Andy Sedaris classic Malibu Express. Jackie Mason played Jew Number 1. That's the Spanish Inquisition Ping Pong Ball's character. Mm-hmm. He's a celebrated comedian. He's Harry Hartunian in The Jerk and appears in Caddyshack 2 as Jack Hartoonian a sort of replacement for the Rodney Dangerfield character. He's appeared as himself on 30 Rock, but he's probably best known as the voice of Rabbi Hyman Krustowski, (laughs) father of Krusty the Clown on The Simpsons, a part for which he won an Emmy performing a parody of The Jazz Singer, which we covered last season. Jack Carter played the Rat Vendor. He was the mayor in Alligator last year and Sharky in the Octagon last year. He's also back later this season as Catskill in Heartbeeps. I'm guessing that's a comedian robot. Mm Mm-hmm. Spike Milligan played Monsieur Rimbaud, he performed on The Goon Show with Peter Sellers and we mentioned him in our Patreon review as he was Roald Dahl's first choice for the part of Willy Wonka, which he did not get. John Hillerman played Rich Man, The French Revolution, he was Howard Johnson in Blazing Saddles, and Yelburton in Chinatown. Sidney Lassick played the Apple Corps vendor, he's Cheswick in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and he's Mr. Fromm in Carey. He was also Gutchel, the pet shop owner in Alligator, and we'll see him later this season as Ernest in The Unseen. He's also the chess player in a MacGyver episode. Okay, yeah, yeah. Nigel Hawthorne plays Citizen Official in the French Revolution segment. He's the voice of Dr. Boycott in The Plague Dogs. He was also nominated for the Oscar for Lead Actor in The Madness of King George in 1995. Mike Cottrell played Tartuffe in the French Revolution segment. In Return of the Jedi, he plays an Ewok warrior, and he was also a dwarf in Flash Gordon and Clash of the Titans. John Gavon plays Marche from the French Revolution segment. He's also in Return of the Jedi as an Ewok, and in Flash Gordon, and in Clash of the Titans. Rusty Goff played La Muff in the French Revolution segment. He's a Gringotts Goblin, and he's in Flash Gordon, but he didn't make it into Clash of the Titans. Michael Miller plays Coming Attractions, that's how he's credited. Weirdly, he and Royce D. Applegate are both credited as Coming Attractions here, which is the original title of the previous film that we saw them both in, yeah. which was later renamed Loose Shoes. Royce D. Applegate, as we mentioned in that review, uh, is also Chief Crocker on Sequest 2032.
2: Is this possibly a Link error?
1: How, w- how would that work?
2: I just think it's an odd coincidence that they're both in films in a film that was called coming attractions
1: and then they're credited as coming attractions yeah i feel like it's entirely possible that it's a mistake and i did not sit through all the credits to see if they're actually credited in this film as coming attractions but i would guess that that's probably an error actually you're probably right phil adams plays uncredited jew he was also a chef in underground aces earlier this season B. Arthur played the dole office clerk. Amazingly, she's uncredited as well.
2: Yeah, I was I was wondering about that, because I always think it's odd when actors... Especially
1: choose, big, recognizable ones. Yeah, yeah,
2: choose not to get credits, but yeah. I'm sure that there was a reason.
1: She's also Maud Findlay on the series Maud. She's Akmina the bartender from the Star Wars Holiday Special, but she's probably best known as Dorothy from the Golden Girls. Whenever I hear her name, I think of the scene from Airheads where they're compiling their insane list of demands and it includes nude photos of B. Arthur and then they actually receive the photos. (laughs) And Judd Nelson notices over their shoulders like...
0: B. Arthur. Outstanding.
1: (laughs) Dick Durock played a Roman guard, uncredited. He was Bill Travis in Stand By Me. He's the Swamp Thing in the Swamp Thing movies. We've seen him as the jump master for the skydiving scene in The Nude Bomb. He was Gregory in Coast to Coast and Joe Casey in Any Which Way You Can. Walter Henry played King Louis XVI's servant. He's uncredited Cloverleaf executive in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Carl Reiner did the voice of God speaking to Moses, which is a funny, uncredited role for him. Yeah. Obviously a famous comedy writer and best friend of Mel Brooks, who created and wrote for The Dick Van Dyke Show, and later the new Dick Van Dyke Show. He's also the father of actor-director Rob Reiner, and we'll see his work next as the writer-director of Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and The Man with Two Brains. Before this, he had directed Where's Papa, The Jerk, and the first O God film, for some reason. I have no idea why he made that. Ted White played a Roman officer, also uncredited. He has bit parts in Oh God Book 2, Demonoid, Cutter's Way, Going Ape, and Lone Ranger, so far from what we've covered. Albert Whitlock was the used chariot salesman. He has mostly VFX credits on titles like Dune, The Andromeda Strain, and Earthquake. So far on the show, we've covered his work on The Island, Blues Brothers, Next Movie, In God We Trust, and this which he also as i said before did effects for he did a mm-hmm. lot of the matte paintings which are incredible actually yeah. all these wide shots of rome that just that they're, they're seamless they look really great yeah yeah. tom willett played a roman senator i think the one who's calling for a vote on building more palaces and he played a kissing cowboy in melvin and howard last season probably during the wedding montage and he's played abe lincoln on a few shows including drew carey
2: sorry did you say hey Lincoln?
1: no i said abe lincoln <laughs> I think that's everything for The History of the World Part 1. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. What's that sound?
0: We got one!
1: That's right. It's a new patron, Eric Rudetsky. As a $5 patron, Eric now has access to 23 full-size 70s reviews and 19 minisodes. Thanks so much, Eric, for helping make the show possible. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at vintagevideopodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing something called Raiders of the Lost Ark... Which IMDB describes like so. In 1936, archaeologist and adventurer Indiana Jones is hired by the U.S. government to find the Ark of the Covenant before Adolf Hitler's Nazis can obtain its awesome powers. We leave you now with the trailer, if there is one, for Raiders of the Lost Ark.
0: For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark levelling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly, no one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. The Ark, if it is their Atanis. then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. It is protected by forces beyond imagination. It is desired above all treasures on Earth by those who are good, trust me. And those who are evil. I'll tell you everything. Yes, I know you will. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let her go. No time if you still want the ark, it has been loaded onto a truck for Cairo. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas.